This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network, we bring you our deep dive town hall series, learning about key issues Indivisibles care about. Today, the climate crisis. We are joined by representatives from three Washington-based climate organizations, FutureWise, the Climate Alliance for Jobs and Clean Energy, and the Washington Environmental Council to hear about their respective legislative agendas and what their goals and hopes are for this year's session, which has already indicated it will prioritize the climate. This was recorded live on Saturday, January 26th. We tackle very big issues on this series, but in terms of fundamental threats to our very existence, it is hard to imagine anything more consequential than the climate crisis. So here to talk about it uh, tonight and about what we can do here in Washington State, we have three incredible guests who are going to help us try to understand the scope of the problem. They will also be laying out their respective organizations' agendas for action in this year's legislative session. We will be taking audience questions at about 745, so please do enter your questions into the chat bar. And with that, I'm happy to introduce Jamie Potosik. She is lead organizer of the Washington Can't Wait campaign with the land use, organiz- land use organization, rather, FutureWise. Hello, Jamie. Welcome. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so glad that you're here. Lauren Brainart is coalition director with Climate Alliance for Jobs and Clean Energy, a multi-sector climate just coalition in Washington state. Hello to you, Lauren. Hello. Great to be here. And then finally, we have Kat Holmes, a field director with the Washington Environmental Council and Washington Conservation Voters. Hello to you, Kat. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having us tonight. We're so grateful that you are here and taking the time. And so I think where I would like to start with each of you is to get a sense of how you view the scope of the problem that we face right now, and specifically with an eye on how it impacts us here in Washington state. Uh, Kat Holmes, let's, let's start with you on this. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a really great question, and I appreciate you asking like us to bring it to bring it home here to Washington State. I think the challenge is the scope is vast. That's why we refer to this as the existential challenge of our lifetime. Um, but I think when we bring it home to Washington State, we can see how we're dealing with climate impacts right now, from devastating climate fires to ocean acidification on our coast. Um, and like loss of habitat for some of our iconic species due to climate change. I think the other thing to really bring home is that frontline communities here in Washington state are feeling the brunt of pollution um, every single day. And Washington is on track to fail and miss meeting uh, reducing our carbon emissions by 25% by 2035. So that's kind of how I see it. Wildfires, uh, loss of species, frontline communities really feeling the brunt of all this. Absolutely. Uh, Jamie Potosik, would you like to expand on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Just to kind of compliment what Kat's already saying, like, um, yeah, we're already feeling very profound impacts of climate change across the state. Uh, we've had record high temperatures these past few years that have led to sturgeon die-offs, uh, snowpack decrease, reduced river flows, big agricultural losses, uh, and increases in heat-related illnesses. Um and I don't think, I mean, Kat mentioned it, but we don't need to think uh, far past this September when we were all living in what felt like a post-apocalyptic world and breathing yeah. in really toxic air. Um, and yeah, I think we're really, if we continue on this current trajectory, like that nightmare is going to become the new normal. Um, and I think most importantly, and, and you know, Kat touched on this, but I think it's worth just saying again and again, uh, is that this crisis really isn't impacting our communities equally, and it is often our Indigenous and BIPOC communities 
uh, that are most profoundly impacted by these hazards um, and sort of this inequity in who's bearing uh, the brunt of climate change and who, and then also who has the resources and the access and the mobility to really insulate themselves from the impacts um, is just something that we really can't o- overlook uh, when we're having these conversations about how it's impacting people in Washington. Well, Lauren Brainart, and I think uh, Jamie and Kat are alluding to this, the Washington Climate Alliance understands that climate is intertwined with, uh, as, as, as uh, everybody else here is saying, numerous other crises that we're facing right now. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about some of those intersections as you see them. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, Yeah, so as you said, you know, our coalition is a multi-sector coalition of labor partners, community of color-based organizations, environmental partners. We work alongside tribes. And I think for all of us right now, we are, you know, dealing with multiple crises. We're grappling with a public health emergency, an economic crisis. We are already dealing with an ongoing climate crisis, staggering wealth inequalities, health disparities. Um, and so really all of these crises are tied together and, and are woven, yeah, are woven together. And I think, you know, as Jamie and Kat mentioned, like both the impacts of the climate crisis and COVID-19 are disproportionately impacting frontline community of color-based organizations and low-income communities across our state. For example, um, our partners, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, which is an independent farm worker coalition, they were organizing this past year and or this past summer and fall um, in Yakima to unionize the warehouse workers um, who were disproportionately impacted um, by COVID, not having enough PPE, as well as other farm workers in Yakima had experienced um, increased heat during the summer due to the climate crisis. So, all of these, you know, crises are tied together. But I think the powerful thing is. When um, you know crises happen, um, it opens the door to transformative change and possibilities. So excited, excited about that. I like that lens. I think that's absolutely right. And we're going to be uh, touching on everything that the three of you just laid out tonight in your legislative agendas as we go on. But I should note, before we move on from you, Lauren, that there's a great deal of overlap between the three organizations represented here tonight. Um, You, I believe, are uniquely situated to talk about that. Can you talk about some of the ways that your three organizations kind of overlap and interconnect? Yeah. So Washington Environmental Council and FutureWise are a part of our coalition. Um, we work hand in hand together, have for years. Um, you know, our one of our top priorities this legislative session is growth management act amendments with Jamie is leading with FutureWise and the Washington Can't Wait campaign. Um, Washington Environmental Council is on our on, on our governance board and they run the Environmental Priorities Coalition which um, yeah, many prior, many of our coalition partners are also a part of. So there's tons of overlap um, and we work together closely because that's how we have to do it. Well, it is so great to have you all working together. And uh, I want to talk about your legislative agenda. So Kat, we'll start with you. Uh, you are with the Washington Environmental Council. Your agenda comes from the Environmental Priorities Coalition. And you have three legislative priorities. The first is the clean fuel standard or low carbon fuel standard. This uh, is considered by many to be the top priority of the year. And, and, you know, I think everybody's watching this in part because this is something that has failed to pass the last four sessions. So tell us what, for the uninitiated, what the clean fuel standard is and why it's so important. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that clean fuel standard, um, part of why I sighed a little bit and rolled my eyes is this is some legislation that we've been trying to pass for the past three years. And it's made it through the House the past couple of years, installed in the Senate. And that's been um, a huge frustration for the environmental community at large. Um, I want to share with folks that this year it's House Bill 1091, and I'll drop that in the chat in a little bit. Um, but a clean fuel standard uh, will require that fuel producers and importers reduce pollution from fuels that power our transportation system. Um, it's a tested and effective policy. Uh, I'd like to mention that California, Oregon, and British Columbia have all adopted a low carbon fuel standard. So we're kind of that missing jigsaw puzzle piece. Um, it's designed to clean our air, give us more options to fuel our vehicles. And when I say that, I mean like electricity, local renewable biofuels. Um, it's also designed to create economic development, cut climate pollution and move us beyond oil. I think the last thing that I'll mention is uh, the transportation sector is responsible for like 45%, so almost half of our climate and air pollution in Washington. So we really need our transportation to be clean, affordable, and accessible. Well, as you mentioned, uh, HB 1091, this is uh, prime sponsored by Representative Joe Fitzgibbon. And I'm, I would like to, to sort of touch on what the roadblocks are without getting too far into the weeds, uh, the legislative weeds about this. And I'll ask the question this way. What will you be doing to make sure that it passes? And then what can we as citizen activists uh, help in that regard? We are trying to do all the things. And this year, we're really trying to pull out all the stops. So we've got um, ads targeted to the state legislature. Um, I wasn't sure whether I should share that, but I mean, the people that work on the tech side are super smart and they know how to get some of these clean fuels ads in front of the people that need to see them. Um, we're getting the word out on social media. We're connecting with press, uh, talking to groups like Indivisible that we know are connected throughout Washington state. We're hosting a lobby day um, and I'm gonna put on my political Washington conservation voters hat real quick. And during the 2020 election cycle, we worked super hard um, on some key Senate races to try and bring some new leadership to the Washington State Senate. And we're really excited to see Twana Nobles in the 28th legislative district in Pierce County. Yes. Um, joining us as a new, this, only the second black woman senator in Washington State's history. And then you and I chatted about this, Stefan, but really disappointing to see um, Ingrid Anderson losing the fifth. We were trying, one of her, biggest pieces that she was trying to get elected on was enacting the, the clean fuel standard. So we're, we're trying all the tactics this year. I also want to talk about an item called conservation works that is in your uh, legislative agenda. And uh, I want to quote it in full because I think it's important. It quote seeks to protect essential environmental programs from budget cuts and promote investments in responsible projects that tackle climate change, create good jobs, support salmon and orca recovery and help communities chart their own course for a better future. So this this is a budgetary measure. And, and I will note uh, just teeing you up here that we have three aspects of our state budget, the operating, the capital and the transportation. So what spending would conservation works be focused on? Yeah, and for those of y'all that are um, just learning about the three parts to the budget, one thing I'll say is uh, 
for me, this was a really opaque uh, part of the state legislature just until recently. So um, I'm really glad that groups like Indivisible are, are talking about this. I think it's really important, Stefan, when we talk about the budget this year is to really look at it through the lens of the COVID pandemic, right? Because as a result of the pandemic, our state is facing a multi-billion dollar budget shortfall. Um, and with our upside down tax system, we're unable to provide reliable funding. And this is, a, it's a time of great challenge, but also a time of great opportunity for us to really rethink and rebuild our state budget so it can be more fair and equitable. We can keep people in their houses with their basic needs met, um, but also invest in win-win solutions that create jobs, um, improve public health and protect the environment. So I think the last piece I'll say before I, I get to some more specifics is in 2007 to 2013, when we saw the last budget shortfall um, in Washington state, we saw the steepest reductions in the in environment environmental um, programs. For example, the Department of Ecology lost 60% of its funding. And the reason we need to learn from that is that when you cut environmental programs in the short term, it pushes the costs onto people, like more pollution. Uh, it impacts public health. We see a loss of public recreation space, and we all know how important that's become during the pandemic. So I just wanted to set that wider frame. Um, and as we look at the operating budget, um, we'll be looking at implementing laws and policies um, for essential government programs and making sure that the funding stays where it needs to stay. So one example is the Model Toxic Control Act, uh, which helps clean up and funding for toxic pollutions in local communities. We wanna make sure that that stays fully funded. In the capital budget, that's a space where we can see more of an opportunity for um, investments in things like public health, infrastructure, and good jobs. Um, I'm excited about the rural community component where we're looking to reduce risk of wildfire, invest in things like rural broadband, and also put money into things like community forests, which allows local community members to take control of managing their public lands. Um, there's also great stuff in there around climate and clean energy, where we're weatherizing homes, transitioning to a clean energy grid, and then for clean water and green infrastructure, really investing in uh, toxic cleanups and upgrading our wastewater treatment systems. You're also advocating for an updated working families tax credit. Of course, this is essential. I'm wondering how you see that specifically inter intersecting with climate policy. Yeah, so the updated working families tax credit is House Bill 1297. You know, the way and just to share what that does is it um, it makes sure that we are providing direct cash assistance to low and moderate income earners that are most affected by our upside down tax code and the current public health crisis. I see that intersecting with climate policy because it's focuses on social and economic justice. And we really need to cut the red tape right now during this pandemic in particular for folks who need financial assistance the most. Because again, these low income communities and often communities of color and black and indigenous communities are bearing the biggest burden of climate and pollution impacts while often contributing the least. So that's why I see that, that's where I see that intersection. 
And finally, you have two areas of focus that overlap between your agenda and Resilient Future, which are the HEAL Act and Clean and Just Transportation. So let's start with the HEAL Act. Uh, Tell us about it and, and what it would do. Yeah, HEAL Act is Senate Bill 5141, and it stands for Healthy Environment for All. And it's one of those bills that was initially put forth in 2018. Coming out of that, um, it created an environmental justice task force, but we it left, um, it was incomplete at that moment. So we are picking up the HEAL Act again. And the HEAL Act would make Washington State's environmental programs more effective by requiring that they pursue an equitable standard of environmental health quality in every community. So that could mean culturally appropriate public engagement in how we're interacting with the public around environmental policies. It could also look like how we implement and enforce environmental uh, protections so that we're conducting those in a way that uh, prioritizes strengthening and serving the public. This is the bit, one of the bills I'm most excited about, and it's a priority for us because we feel very strongly that where you live, your zip code, your income, your race, your language ability, it should not determine how healthy and safe you are. And for those of us that are in like the greater Puget Sound area, you know, there's a 13-year difference between somebody who lives in uh, the Queen Anne area of Seattle Someone who lives in Duwamish River Valley lives 13 years less, mm. and that's just wrong. Like when I heard that the first time, it just it was staggering. And I think when we're looking at, there's a really cool tool that I'll share in the chat later. It's called the Environmental Health Disparities Map. It illustrates that not all communities are impacted by pollution in the same way, and the communities most impacted by pollution are higher percentages of people of color and folks with lower incomes. And that's what the HEAL Act is looking to solve. The last item on your legislative agenda that I would like to unpack with you is clean and just transportation, which I mentioned. Um, and I'm, we, we know what clean transportation is driving toward. I'm wondering if you can give us uh, your thoughts on what, a, what it would mean to have a just public transportation. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I was listening to an interview with um, someone from Sound Transit the other day. and one of the things they were talking about is ridership has gone down to a certain extent on public transportation during COVID-19. However, many of the people that are still riding public transportation right now are essential workers that we are relying on. There are grocery store workers, there are healthcare workers. And I think that's something just to sit with and think about how important uh, having access to public transportation is. Um, and I think it's really important with the, the way that we're approaching this clean and just transportation is to look at investing, how we're investing in sustainable and equitable transportation. So for example, right now, multimodal transit, bike and pedestrian funding is only 4%. And we really need to see that grow. So we're trying through this, uh, through this approach to the transportation budget, we're trying to find a holistic system with unconstrained revenue, no strings attached, and investments that focus on accessibility for all users, um, whatever your ability level is. It prioritizes equity and it reduces greenhouse gas emissions um, and environmental impacts. So that's what I mean by just. 
Here's what I would like to bring in, Lauren Brainart. Uh, you are with the Washington Climate Alliance, and your platform comes from the Resilient Future Coalition. And you have a seven-point legislative agenda. As I mentioned, there is overlap uh, with the Environmental Priorities Coalition. But you have, uh, this is dovetailing on what Kat is talking about, you have a clean and just transportation working group that is putting together a transportation package. I'm wondering what you can tell us about that. Yeah, so we have um, yeah, a clean and just transportation working group within our coalition, which FutureWise and WEC also sit in. And um, this legislative session, the legislature is attempting to pass a transportation package. So in preparation for this legislative session, our coalition came together to develop our recommendations on what clean and just transportation revenue and investments should look like. So we have been working with, um, you know, the chair of the House Transportation Committee, Representative Thigh, and others like Senator Saldana around how we can shape um, this upcoming transportation package. Um, We are really excited about Representative Thigh's transportation package. In a lot of ways, it it represents replicates and represents our priorities around um, progressive, new progressive transportation revenue sources and equitable investments. And for us, you know, that means, as Kat said, um, a transition away from overfunding highway expansion and into investments such as, you know, multimodal bike lanes, into rural transit, Um, and into, you know, maintenance and preservation of highway instead of expansion. So obviously it's a very, it's a multi, multi multi-billion dollar package. So we, um, yeah, we're trying to make sure that it um, invests in communities most impacted um, compared to the previous transportation package passed in 2015. I know that your platform has a lot to say about environmental justice. Before we get to that, I will ask you, because I know that this is a big part of your priority, too. Um, Kat had a lot to say about the HEAL Act uh, vis-a-vis environmental justice. I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Yeah, Kat did a great overview. I guess the only thing that I would like to add is the severity and the importance of the Healthy Environment for All Act. I was on a call with Brennan Centered, which is our, um, which is the you know lead coalition who spearhead is spearheading this bill. They're a coalition of community of color based organizations and low income advocates across Washington State, and you know California has a definition of environmental justice, but um, this bill, if passed, would be the nation's strongest actualization and implementation of environmental justice throughout all state agencies. Um, so, you know, this is this is profound. If we're able to pass this, it's going to enable us to create the equitable climate policies, to create the equitable um, environmental policies that we need based on the community feedback process that it will develop. So really excited about this. I know that there is a taxation focused aspect of your legislative agenda, and I would love to get into that a little bit uh, because this is very top of mind for so many people. This year, we have a Democratic trifecta in uh, in Olympia, and, and I think a lot of people, they, they want to see what we can do. Um, you're advocating for uh, progressive revenue and equitable carbon pricing, and we can kind of break down what that ultimately means. Let's start with the progressive revenue streams. We know, everybody watching and listening knows that, that we here in Washington have the most regressive tax structure in the U.S. What progressive revenue is your coalition interested in and looking at? 
Yeah, so we're following the lead of allied coalitions such as Balance Our Tax Code, who is putting forth a set of progressive revenue options, including capital gains, inheritance, excise tax, luxury vehicle tax. Um, and so all of those are progressive revenue sources that we are looking into, amplifying and supporting. Um, and then, you know, we're calling for an equitable carbon pricing policy. There are various policies on the table right now that our coalition partners are advocating for. Um, and so, yeah, we are advocating both for general economy wide progressive revenue and then also transportation specific new progressive revenue sources. This is the time to um, invest big and not for budget cuts. Think big, invest big, absolutely push against austerity. Um, I do want to drill down on carbon pricing a little bit because this may be new for some people and it is complicated. <laughs> and I can I can speak from experience as somebody who's spent the last couple of days really kind of drilling into this and uh, looking at a number of the proposals that are on the table. Roughly speaking, this uses the market to put a price on carbon emissions so that there's a cost right, to, to impacting the climate. And ideally done, it'll create incentives to curb uh, or allow, uh, you know, fossil fuels to transition to alternative energy, if done properly. So, seen through that lens, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more specificity about some of the carbon pricing proposals in the legislature that you're tracking that we should be aware of. Yeah, so um, there's a couple policy or policy proposals right now. There's the carbon tax green bond proposal, both a House and Senate version, um, and then there's also a cap and invest proposal. Um, and so, you know, both put a price on carbon and use that revenue to invest in carbon reduction strategies, to invest in communities. Um, you know, but the bills are very different. Um, and our partners are shaping um, shaping the bills to make them, you know, meet strengthened criteria around, you know, work uh, labor protections, um, make sure that communities most impacted by pollution are not burdened by these policies. So, um, yeah, I could go into the weeds about each one, but those are the main two. And then the transportation package is there's also a carbon fee that is being proposed within it. So those are sort of the carbon pricing policies that are in discussion. The um, carbon tax green bond bill hasn't um, dropped yet, um, but we're waiting for that to drop this week. And the cap and trade bill um, had a hearing last week. And we will be keeping an eye on that as that all goes forward. Um, we have all, each one of you has talked about the racial equity aspect here, but I want to go into a line item on your agenda that addresses racial equity quite, uh, you know, quite directly, quite specifically. And I'll read this one in full. It says, we must reprioritize our state budget away from extractive and exploitative practices that criminalize, incarcerate, and harm the health of BIPOC communities, and instead invest in the equitable distribution of sustainable investments in climate resiliency and the health and safety of BIPOC communities. Communities. In what specific ways would you like to see funds redirected to meet these goals? And, and by the way, very, very laudable goals. Yeah. So, yeah, for us, that is a bold vision statement. Like that is where we want to go. And I think the question is, you know, how do we get there? And the first step in how do we get there is we actually listen 
to BIPOC communities, to Black, Indigenous, and, and communities of color. And the ways that we are doing that and showing up as a coalition is following the lead of Black-led coalitions, such as Washington for Black Lives, such as the new Washington Black Lives Matter Alliance, who are putting forth a series of policies around racial justice and police reform. You know, for us as a climate coalition, you know, we we see police reform, we see, you know, systematic racial justice reform policies as um, a key climate justice solution, um, but as a as an example of what could be reprioritized in our state budget, could be example of community expanding community health services in disproportionately impacted communities who see the brunt of um, of pollution and of the climate crisis or investing in increased access to education or broadband, fair housing, green infrastructure. So, you know, for us, when we ran Initiative 1631, 35% of the investments that would have come from the, from the carbon fee would have been directly reinvested into communities most impacted by pollution. We wanna see that happen at a larger scale, happen in the capital budget, happen in any future carbon pricing policy, that reprioritization is key. I love that. And, and it's and it's really such a, a tremendous part of your legislative agenda. The next two items have to do with public purchasing and contracting. These were wake up calls to me in particular. So you support something called the Buy Clean and Buy Fair Washington Act. And you say that exploitative manufacturers currently have an unfair advantage in state purchasing. Um, I was surprised when we talked about this. To tell, tell, tell everybody what, to, what you and I talked about earlier when we were preparing for this. Yeah, and this isn't, you know, my expertise. We're definitely following the lead of our core partners, Washington Blue Green Alliance. But, you know, right now, Washington State, we we have contracts with many manufacturers. We have many, we purchase many materials as a state. And right now we don't have any standards for, you know, um, the carbon uh, carbon content of those materials or of those those contracts that we have or an evaluation of whether those materials you know, come from manufacturers that have strong labor standards. So the Buy Clean, Buy Fair Act would mandate you know, standards around, um, you know, around the carbon content of materials and, of, and stated the, the working conditions of the workers making those materials so that we're able to know transparently um, as a state, you know, um, so we can choose um, project. We can choose contractors and materials that um, have fair, fair working conditions and have less carbon content. So manufacturers in Washington State, which are mandated to have stronger standards, can outweigh and outbid manufacturers that are often, um, you know, not in Washington State or often not actually in the U.S. too. So it strengthens. Um, yeah, it strengthens our labor unions in our state as well. So this is a big and important policy. In my mind, it actually fits uh, into, it's, it's of a piece with advocacy for a state bank. Would you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Different, but, but in alignment. So Resilient Future also wants to update the Growth Management Act, and that is the main focus of FutureWise's Washington Can't Wait campaign. So let's bring in Jamie Potasek. Um, so for those who may not be familiar, Jamie, tell us what the Growth Management Act is, and then why does your agenda focus so much on it? 
Sure. Uh, yeah. So for folks who don't know, um, and a lot of people don't know about the Growth Management Act, it's a really big and kind of wonky uh, statewide um, body of legislation. And, and not every state has a Growth Management Act, but it is a really important tool that we have in Washington to work with. Um, so it was first adopted in, in 1990 when Washington was growing faster than it ever had before. And it was um, created to set policy and give states and counties the tools that they need uh, to really effectively manage their population growth. And it's based in this vision of the state with, with compact cities and towns that are really well designed uh, and are surrounded by working farms, critical habitats, forests, rural landscapes. Um, and just to sort of get at this goal and this vision, it requires that counties and cities in Washington are writing comprehensive plans to manage their growth and that they're updating and reviewing those plans every eight years. Um, within the comprehensive plans themselves, there's currently 14 different goals or areas that states need to focus on. This is anything from capital facilities to transportation to housing affordability to critical habitat protection. Um, and so it really sets this framework and this guide for states to, to more sustainably and thoughtfully manage their population growth. And the reason we're focusing on it, one, FutureWise as an organization, um, we were founded in 1990 and our role has kind of been as an accountability organization to the Growth Management Act to make sure that counties and cities are actually writing comprehensive plans that are in line with the goal of the Growth Management Act. So I would say in the state of Washington, FutureWise is probably, you know, the lead organization in working within the Growth Management Act and really promoting the sustainable and equitable growth with the tools that it provides. Um, and sort of through that work, we've gotten to know it really well. And we know that although it's good at some things, there are some areas uh, where it's currently lacking. And we really see it as this framework that can be and is a powerful tool for us to use um, to ensure that our counties and cities are making land use decisions that are addressing some of the biggest issues that are facing our state. Um, and so, yeah, this year we're really focusing in on making sure that climate change housing affordability and environmental justice are more fully folded into and incorporated into the Growth Management Act to make sure that our cities and our counties are planning for those three things. Climate change, affordable housing, environmental justice incorporated into the GMA. And you say that there's an urgency to making these changes now, which is why it's it's called Washington Can't Wait. Why is it urgent? Yeah, so sort of, uh, I mentioned that, you know, states undergo these updates of their comprehensive plans every eight years. And just sort of the nature of how that cycle is working, some of our fastest growing and largest counties in the central Puget Sound region have their next comprehensive plan updates due in 2024. And so the way that process works is this year, they're going to start going through the review process through those updates. Um, so if we do not get policy incorporated into the Growth Management Act this year that would require jurisdictions to plan for climate change, housing affordability, and environmental justice, uh, it's really unlikely that we're going to get it passed in time to apply to that next round of updates. Um, and so then those updates would go through, that policy would get locked into place for another decade, uh, and it would be 10 years before our cities and our counties are addressing these issues through this, this framework and this lens. Um, and yeah, we just don't have that long to wait. <laughs> Understood. Well, let's talk about some of the legislative changes that you're advocating for. So one of the bills is HB 1099. This is adding a climate goal and uh, an element to the GMA. Talk specifically about what this bill will do. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, HB 1099. So I mentioned those 14 goals that are within the Growth Management Act. This would add climate change as a 15th goal, uh, a 15th thing that counties and cities need to be considering in their comprehensive plans. And so it's kind of has two, I think of it as kind of two pronged. 
Um, one prong of it will require that uh, all counties and cities in Washington are planning for climate mitigation and resiliency uh, to protect our environments and our communities from the worst impacts of climate change. So thinking back to those things you were mentioning, wildfires, droughts, um, sea level rise, really honing in on where do we see, you know, where is it likely that those things are going to increase in frequency and severity? And how can we, through our comprehensive plans, ensure we're doing what we can to mitigate the impacts of those, both on our farms, our critical habitats, our forests, um, but also on our communities. Um, and then the second prong of this legislation will require that the 10 largest and fastest growing counties and the cities within them in Washington are making plans to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and their vehicle miles traveled to meet statewide targets for reduction. Um, so right now the state of Washington has plans um, and goals for reduction in both of these areas, but cities and counties aren't actually required to do anything uh, to help meet them. And so the hope with this bill is that what it will result in is planning for communities uh, that are not only climate resilient, but are more compact, they're vibrant, accessible neighborhoods um, that provide really easy access to parks and jobs and schools um, without folks having to get into, into their own cars and drive. So more robust public transportation, more walkable and bikeable neighborhoods um, is the, you know, the hopeful outcome. Um, yeah. And I will say this bill is being sponsored uh, by Davina Doerr and Joe Fitzgibbon, and it had its first hearing last week in the House Environment and Energy Committee, and we expect on Friday that it will get voted out of committee and go to appropriations. Good. We'll keep an eye on that. So again, that is HB 1099. Uh, another on your legislative agenda is HB 1220. This is updating the housing element of the GMA. So tell us more about this. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll just start by saying that there, there is currently a housing affordability goal in the Growth Management Act. Uh, but from our perspective, it's probably... Um, the weakest and, and maybe most useless um, goal that is currently in the GMA, it's really nonspecific. It really lacks any way to hold cities and counties accountable. Uh, and that's why, you know, no matter where you look in Washington, there's this um, crisis that people cannot afford the housing that's available. Rent has increased uh, at a pace that's been far greater than, um, than wages, nearly 20 or 32% of renters in Washington are cost burdened, which means they spend more than 30% of their incomes on housing. And because of all of this, Washington has one of the highest rates of homelessness in the entire nation. So we're really facing a crisis with our housing. Um, and this bill will hopefully, you know, not solve the problem completely, but really, you know, be part of the solution. Um, so like you said, it would update that housing affordability goal um, and develop regulations uh, to provide that jurisdictions are planning for uh, and accommodating affordable housing. Currently, the language just says that they need to encourage it. This would actually require that they're planning for it. Um, so jurisdictions will have to address moderate, low, very low, and extremely low income housing in the housing element of their comprehensive plans. It'll also require that jurisdictions are planning for a diversity of housing types. So not just single family and not just high rise apartments, but more duplexes, triplexes, sort of what we refer to as this missing middle um, of housing. And they'll also have to make plans for emergency housing, emergency, emergency shelters and permanent supportive housing. Um, and then probably maybe most importantly, it's gonna require jurisdictions to identify policies, regulations, and practices that will address and undo racial, racially disparate impacts, um, displacement and exclusion in our, in our housing. So things like redlining and racial covenants and these other policies that have been really racially biased and discriminatory, 
this bill would actually require jurisdictions to identify what the impacts of those have been uh, and make plans to undo them. And then the, the last part of this bill is that it will also require that our cities and counties are identifying areas that are at a really high risk uh, of displacement from market forces. So, you know, our neighbors who are really close to getting priced out and having to move further away um, from work and school because they can no longer afford their neighborhoods. Uh, and it'll require cities and counties like make plans and implement programs and policies to prevent that displacement from happening. So a really big and important piece of legislation that actually has its first hearing tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Great. I was uh, going to ask what the status government. is. Okay, good. So yeah. for people who are tracking it, it's uh, HB 1220. Just a couple more uh, items on your legislative agenda. Senate Bill 5042 closes the GMA vesting loophole. Can you explain what's meant by that briefly? Sure, yeah. So this is something we've actually been working on for the last 12 years um, to close this vesting loophole. Uh, and what that is, is that currently under the GMA, um, counties can vote to expand their urban growth areas into farmland and natural habitat if they think that they need to, to accommodate their population growth. Um, but sometimes those UGA expansions are unnecessary and just contribute to excessive sprawl. So in cases like that, um, FutureWise, uh, you know, who acts as this accountability organization, might appeal that expansion to the Growth Management Hearings Board and win a judgment that the UGA expansion was illegal under the Growth Management Act. However, under the current framework, uh, any permits that are issued for new construction in those expanded uh, urban growth areas are still valid, even if the UGA expansion is later ruled as illegal. Um, so it's a pretty enormous loophole, and we really want to make sure uh, that we're not seeing more subdevelopments built in prime farmland um, and other critical habitats. So that's why we're working really hard on this bill um, that would close that loophole. And then finally, uh, like Kat and Lauren, your organization is also very focused on environmental justice. Uh, I know you've got something in the works. It's not quite there yet, but how are you working on incorporating environmental justice in the GMA? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is actually something we've been working really closely on with Front and Centered. As Lauren mentioned, they're also the organization that's uh, leading on the HEAL action. Essentially, what we're trying to do is figure out how we can embed these uh, the principles within the Healthy Environments for All Act into the Growth Management Act itself. Um, we had originally, originally hoped um, that we would do this through a separate bill, but just through sort of some restrictions in this session where there are fewer bills being introduced and passed um, we're uh, now working to really just fold this, this language and this environmental justice lens into both our housing bill uh, and our climate bill. So working really closely with Front and Centered and Representatives um, Flatter to ensure that, you know, our Growth Management Act comprehensive plans are not only not exacerbating existing environmental inequalities, but actually are taking really proactive steps to address those inequalities. So um, stay tuned. You know, we're working from the Environmental Task Force recommendations and we're doing everything we can to ensure those issues are incorporated into both of our um, both our housing and our climate updates this year. And we will have links to all of your organizations uh, ideally in the chat tonight but if not certainly in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Um, we've been presented with a lot and we're going to get to audience questions here in about one minute but I will just ask each of you are there one or two bills that you feel are absolute must pass this session? Kat we'll start with you on this. I think for me that the HEAL Act uh, is really a must pass. I really want to see us finish the work that was started in 2018 and get that 
equity lens applied across all of our environmental programs. Lauren, how about you? Uh, must pass bills one or two this session? Um, Heal Act for sure, and then the Growth Management Act because it um, is being brought up this session and, and hasn't for a long time. So those would be my top two. So Jamie, uh, obviously the Growth Management Act front and center for you, but are, is there one that would uh, take primacy over the other, uh, for example, in the, in the list of the, the three that we talked about? Oh gosh. Um, I would say, I think for me, just in terms of what would have the most impact and really get to the root of some of our biggest crises, uh, getting House Bill 1099, which would add that climate change uh, goal, and then also updating the housing affordability um, element with uh, House Bill 1220 which are just vital. I think we're way behind the curve in, in addressing both of those issues, and they're only going to get worse and more complicated and harder uh, the longer we wait. So, Are you optimistic about this session? Um, I think I, I, yeah, I am. I think it's, you know, this session, I think, you know, um, it's presenting some different challenges, just it's the first virtual session. It's more condensed. They are introducing and passing, um, fewer bills, but I think this last year has really showed us how profoundly a lot of, um, a lot of these different crises are impacting us. And I think there's a growing awareness that they are all interrelated and that addressing any one of them is going to take really bold and comprehensive policy uh, to address all of them. And so, yeah, I feel like there's like really great momentum uh, behind our legislative priorities, behind the work of the Environmental Priorities Coalition of the Climate Alliance. Um, and I think like a general consensus, uh, you know, among a lot of people in Washington that these issues need to be addressed and we need to take them seriously. And I I really hope that this year's the year. And if I wasn't optimistic, I would not be doing um, this work every day. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to be optimistic to do what you're doing. Lauren, do you share that optimism? Yeah, I do. You know, I think right now we're early in session. So I'm seeing, you know, optimistic legislators as well, you know, talking about the importance of equity, talking about the importance of the climate crisis. But push come to shove, right, when, you know, bill cutoffs come and votes happen, I want to make sure that that talk is actualized. So we're going to keep putting pressure on legislators to make sure that, um, you know, racial equity and environmental justice is actually prioritized. So I'm hopeful, optimistic, but... Um, ready to put the pressure on. Well, Kat, you and I were uh, sharing a, a dark secret that that we're both uh, Gen Xers. And so, you know, ultimately we should be a little more, I don't know, uh, a little more cynical about this whole process. But you strike me as an extraordinarily optimistic person, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. My, my nature is to be a little glass half empty. And I think some of that yeah. comes with our Gen X nature. However... History has shown, uh, again, uh, 2018, we elected a lot of really great um, uh, first-year legislators that were committed to the environment. And in 2019, we saw that we passed the strongest 100% clean electricity bill in the country, a suite of orca protection bills, an oil spill prevention act, healthy buildings. It was a super long list. And um, I think in maybe in spite of, but also because of the, the pandemic, folks are really focused on what's most important and our public health, and, which includes our environment. Um, we all are having to deal with that every single day of this pandemic. So I think people are engaged and ready to hold elected officials accountable. I think 
there's groups like Indivisible that are so well organized that are educating people. You've got your your list going here, um, getting people to contact their legislators and their Congress folks. So um, in spite of my nature, I am going to also be optimistic. Okay, good. Well, I'll share your optimistic. And uh, I just saw in the comments there that somebody said they're millennial and they love you. So there you go. How about that? So um, yeah, some audience questions here. And, you know, um, the, the Annie asks about which carbon fee plan shall we get behind? And I know that it's kind of a controversial thing and that I'm not sure any uh, uh, one of your groups is ready to make a statement on that. Kat, is, is your uh, group planning a flag on any carbon fee program at this point? Yeah, you know, I think controversial and, and complicated is really um, is really where it's really the right word. The way that our organization is approaching this is we really want to learn from some of the the lessons of 1631. And for example, in the initial drafting of the ballot measure, um, there was not adequate tribal engagement early on in the policy. And I think later um, there was tribal engagement and they went back and rewrote the policy with some of the, the considerations around tribal sovereignty. And so I think um, we have a new CEO at Washington Environmental Council and Washington Conservation Voters, and she's an indigenous woman, and she's deeply committed to making sure that we um, reach out to, to tribal nations and uh, and engage early on. So right now we are um, we are hoping that the legislators pick one policy and get behind it, and we will do our best to make it as equitable. It's got to um, lower emissions. It's got to have the impacts on climate that that all of our groups are advocating for. If it doesn't have strong mechanisms in place, then then we won't support it. Jamie, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I would say echoing <laughs> that. It, yeah, it's definitely very a very controversial and, and hot topic amongst uh, different ad- advocacy groups across the state. Um, I know, you know, speaking on behalf of FutureWise, we're at this point not planning on, on taking a stance um, behind anyone in particular, and are really just con- going to continue to follow the lead uh, of our organizational partners. Um, yeah. And Lauren, you and I had this exact conversation, so I'm not even going to ask you. <laughs> um, so we had uh, somebody ask if I could repeat your uh, organizational affiliation. So Jamie uh, Potasek, you are the lead organizer of the Washington Can't Wait campaign with the land use, or, land use organization FutureWise. Lauren Brainert is coalition director with Climate Alliance for Jobs and Clean Energy. That is a multi-sector climate just coalition in Washington state. And Kat Holmes is field director with the Washington Environmental Council and Washington Conservation Voters. So uh, let's see. So we have a, a question from from our pal Kevin, who is one of the uh, the Kevin Jones, one of the, the organizers of tonight's event. He asks, carbon pricing policy bills, are we in a position that we have to pick one or would it be reasonable to pass multiple carbon pricing policy bills? Which do you think is the most crucial for us to focus energy on? Or uh, what are your thoughts on passing multiple carbon pricing policy bills, are they mutually exclusive or are they compatible? So that just sort of dovetails on what we were just talking about. But I wonder, is it kind of an either or situation at this point? Or is it is, is it a possibility to say we, we, we do multiple? Jamie, since you're here, let's, let's start with you. Um, I don't think I have quite the expertise to be able to answer that. So okay. I'm going to default to Kat. Okay, Kat, we'll punt <laughs> to you. What are your thoughts? Um, 
I am not a policy expert in the field <laughs> person. <laughs> However, um, when I listen to our policy folks talk about this, it's my understanding that um, that they they can only pass one. I don't believe that they can pass multiple bills. Um, Lauren, do you have any further information? Yeah. So as far as like an economy wide price on carbon, right, we have the carbon tax green bond proposal and the cap and trade proposal. We, it can't be both. Um, so, you know, we'll see which which one of them um, is able to get through the committees. Um, but as far as, you know, a specific, um, you know, transportation only carbon fee, that might be an option. But um, as of right now, there are options on the table um, for the whole pie. It can't really be split up. You know, I'll just ask you, and this was a follow-up to uh, what we were talking about earlier with the one or two bills that you really felt were must-pass. There's obviously going to be opposition to this work. Lauren, where do you see the opposition coming from primarily, and how are you planning on countering it? The opposition towards all of our work or for specific policy? Specific policy, specific bills. For example, um, and, and I know that, you know, we've had, uh, particularly when you talk about 1631, we had a lot of pushback from uh, fossil fuel industries and things like that. There was a lot of disinformation. I think uh, this time around, it's my understanding that it's going to be uh, developers, builders, people like that, that you're going to get an, uh, a lot of pushback from, uh, from on things like the GMA. So I just ask you generally, what's your game plan on countering that? Yeah, I'll speak to the HEAL Act, for example, right? I think, you know, we're in a pandemic, we have massive budget losses. Um, and I think the the main argument is, is we don't have enough money, like this is going to cost too much money to, you know, create an environmental justice definition that creates, you know, an environmental justice council that it's embedded in. But this is the work that we need to do. We are always never going to have enough money. And that's why we need more progressive revenue options. That's why, you know, we, we need to do all of these things. So I think, you know, we're going to be hit with austerity again and again and again. And that's why we have to, um, you know, uplift the progressive revenue options as a way out. Um, and also as an argument of we actually do have money. Um, we are, you know, oftentimes spending it in ways that that we don't think it should be spent. So reprioritization as well as progressive revenue is is a way to um, argue against calls for austerity. And that actually ties in perfectly, you know, that sort of puts a bow on everything that you were talking about uh, when we first started talking. It's like, you know, where the, the, the intersection has to do with uh, the budget has to do with, you know, the way that we pay for the way that we prioritize these sorts of things, right? Um, this is something, and, and I want to ask each of you, because it's something that I wake up and I think about uh, some mornings. It's very difficult to convey, I think, the urgency of this particular problem. And and I will just, you know, cop to being, again, a, a Gen Xer and people my age or older, I don't think have the same ability to, to look at this uh, problem with the same sense of urgency that millennials, Gen Z uh, people do. Um, I think largely because it, we, we get up in the morning and the sky is blue and the sun is out and we think, okay, we have other things to think about. And I'm wondering, um, I'll start with you, Jamie, on this. How do you think we best convey the urgency of this moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for us in Washington, it is doing things like calling back the very real impacts um, that we are already feeling of climate change. And then also, um, and this is something I hope, if nothing else, that you know, the three of us have conveyed um, in this time tonight, but 
really communicating the reality that the climate crisis impacts every sector of society um, and it creates new and it exacerbates existing inequalities in our state. And so like, yes, the climate crisis is an issue of environmental health, but because we can't extract people from that environment, it's also a public health issue. It's a social justice issue. It's a food security issue, a housing security, economic security, so much more. Um, so really any issue that we're working to improve um, is only going to become more difficult, if not impossible, uh, to address if we aren't also taking really bold and holistic and comprehensive approaches to addressing the multitude of impacts um, that the climate crisis will continue to have in our environment and on our communities. So I think really hitting, hitting on those intersections, yeah. Yeah, extraordinarily well put. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Lauren, is there anything that you would add to that? I love our partners because we speak the same language. Um, the only to emphasize as a climate movement, we think of the climate crisis as an environmental issue. It is a racial justice issue. It is an economic issue. It is a health issue. It is a health crisis. Um, and therefore, you know, we can't solve the climate crisis without simultaneously, you know, increasing wages, you know, making affordable housing. Um, so, yeah, I think we just need to re rethink the climate crisis as not just, you know, carbon reduction and think about it more holistically. And then once we do that, we can act boldly and we can, you know, do all of the policies that we've been talking about. So I think it's an important reframe and narrative switch that um, the, the, the historical environmental movement needs to make or else we're going to keep losing. Well, we are at the top of the hour, and uh, I think I expressed to each of you that you are currently either live or down the road through rebroadcast going to reach thousands of very, very motivated uh, activists who care deeply about everything that you're talking about. So I'll just ask, what are some of the things that you need help with? What can people do? Uh, Lauren, let's stay with you since we're with you right now. Yeah, I mean, our Resilient Future platform is, you know, I'll, I'll link it back up, but I think we need folks to get engaged, to contact your legislators. All of our partners have, um, you know, various pathways to get involved, whether it's phone banking, emailing your legislators, showing up at lobby days. So there are many ways to get engaged. I think the worst thing that we can all do is to, is to sit back and not engage. So I think take a step forward and um, yeah, get involved. This legislative session is going to go by before we know it. Yeah, they always do. Uh, Jamie, uh, the same question to you. Uh, yeah, I, I would just echo that. I think the most important thing you can do is to advocate for policies that resonate with you, like in whatever way makes sense, whether that is setting up a virtual lobbying meeting with your legislators, sending an email, or just signing in pro um, for some of these really important hearings. It's really easy um, to express you know, your support. And I think specifically for the Washington Can't Wait campaign, if you sign up uh, for our email list, uh, which you can access at futurewise.org forward slash WA Can't Wait, um, you'll get weekly updates from us on the state of our legislation and really easy calls to action um, that you can make to help advocate. So, yeah. And Kat, you'll get the final word on this. Uh, how can people help uh, help with you? Um, you can join us at our 2021 virtual lobby days. Um, we are making it super accessible this year and we're hosting everything online and um, we're encouraging folks to get either take a chance to virtually meet with your legislator or we've got a whole social and digital um, activism component to our, our environmental lobby days this year. And um, the other thing I would say 
to all those Gen Xers out there, uh, don't despair. (laughs) (laughs) Just look around. There's inspiration all around. And I think uh, everybody joining on this call, uh, you all inspire me. So, so thanks. Thanks for that. My thanks again to Lauren Brainart, Jamie Potosik, and Kat Holmes. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin, Julianne Jievsky, Louise Pathé, Robin Gittleman, and especially Kevin Jones. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.